We thought um, with it being Thanksgiving, this would be an appropriate and perfect time to have a communion service. Nothing, uh, nothing exists by which we are more thankful than the shed blood of Christ. You can make your way, if you'd wish, to 1 Kings chapter 3. I know you're thinking it's probably weird that we're going to be in 1 Kings for communion, and I'll make my way there shortly. Have you ever noticed in your life how you have to have reminders of things? Um, People have developed incredible apps to help us structure our lives to remember things Facebook is notorious for uh, people posting pictures and events so that we can memorialize and remember those things and go back and revisit them. We're just like that as people. Paul the Apostle said that, um, I think it was to the church at uh, Philippi, that to write the same things to them was not a burden to him, but it was useful, right, to bring those things back to memory. And this is actually a scriptural idea, both in the Old and New Testaments. Things are set up everywhere in Scripture and in our own lives to help us remember certain events. And there are certain events in Scripture that God wants us to remember. And He gives us various different things throughout all of history to do such things. The first one that I can think of is Noah. We remember the ark, right? God's deliverance of mankind through that, which is a type of Christ, according to 1 Peter But the very first thing that Noah did once dry ground appeared was he got out of the ark and he made an altar to remember the Lord and he made sacrifice there. A little further in Genesis, we read about Jacob and Jacob's the vision of Jacob's ladder with the angels ascending and descending and it's basically God affirming the covenant he'd made with his father Abraham that he would do it. So what did Jacob do? In view of this place, Bethel is where where God showed up to him. He made a pile of stones. He took the stone he was sleeping on. By the way, I I guess that was the thing they had to do when they didn't have pillows as they slept on stones. But he took the stone he was sleeping on and he, he made a pillar out of it and memorialized the Lord showing up to him and affirming that covenant. A major one in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 12. Um, if you want to turn there real quick, keep your hand in 1 Kings. But in Exodus 12, God has systematically dismantled um, Egypt and their gods. And He's about to do the last of the uh, judgments on them. And He institutes the Passover. This is Exodus 12, verse 14. This is what God says about the Passover. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast, a memorial feast. Now, obviously, we don't slaughter the lamb because our Passover lamb, Paul said in Galatians, has been sacrificed already, and we celebrate Christ as our Passover. But nonetheless, the memorial is still there. He is our Passover lamb. If you remember the picture, I love this one, of Aaron's priesthood. As you go further into the wilderness and God begins giving instructions about the priesthood and their garments and the tent and all these things, the priest was to wear two stones, precious stones on his shoulders, and six of the tribes were engraved on one and six of the tribes engraved on another. And God deliberately depicts 
the priest bearing up the people as a priest before the altar. And it was a memorial to the Lord. They were to be remembered always before the throne in the sacrificial system. If you remember, if you've read uh, Joshua, the first thing that they did after they crossed over the Jordan River, right? The Jordan being the, the, the divide between the promised land and the land of slavery. The very first thing after hundreds of years of promise it coming to fulfillment was they set up a pile of stones. They took 12 stones, one representative of each tribe, and they set it up as a memorial for what the Lord accomplished and fulfilled in bringing the children of Israel into the promised land. And at the time that was written, it said that pile was still there. I started thinking about that yesterday and thinking, man, I'd kind of like to explore the Jordan and see if I can find like a pile of 12 stones somewhere. That'd be really cool. In the New Testament, there's two such things given to the church to memorialize and to remember. We call it baptism and communion. Baptism is not what we're doing today. Baptism, though, is celebrating the new birth, the death to self and the resurrection to Christ. But it's also celebrating the washing of regeneration, as Paul says in Titus, the cleansing from sin and what that means for us. So baptism is a memorial of the work that God has done. But communion is what we're celebrating today. And in communion, there's several things that we are called to remember. And that's why this event is an important event. It's an important memorial to remember. The first thing is communion reminds us of the presence of sin. The reality and ongoing presence of sin. In, in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it depicts Christ as our eternal priest who continually lives to make intercession for the saints. As I meditated on that a couple of weeks ago, that verse, it reminded me of my ongoing need for a priest still because of the presence of sin that still lingers in my flesh. I still have the need and service of a priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ. Communion also reminds us of the penalty of sin. The shed blood of Christ, um, well, the death of Christ rather, was the penalty for sin. If you remember way back in Genesis 2, when God told Adam, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And Paul goes on to fulfill and flesh that out a little bit further in the book of Romans 6.23, stating simply that the wages of our sin is death. And so communion brings back to memory the penalty of sin is death. Communion also brings back to memory and reminder of the payment of sin, which is what I was just getting to, the ransom that Jesus paid was with His own blood. Hebrews also says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, 24 and 25, that Christ Jesus was put forward by God the Father as a propitiation for the penalty of our sin. And He bought us, He redeemed us with His own blood. But communion also reminds us of the eventual deliverance from the presence of sin. That the payment has been paid, the penalty has been taken care of, and we await now from heaven our Savior who will deliver us from this body of death that, like Paul talks about in Romans. Hebrews 9 also says the same thing. The deliverance is now what we long for. We don't fear judgment anymore. The judgment was, was taken by Christ. The penalty was paid, but now... We've been brought into a state of longing expectation 
for deliverance from this body of death, which will be the final stage of salvation. So we have many things given to us in Scripture to remind us of many different things. The New Testament gives us baptism and communion. The effect of communion for us answers to each one of those four points we just made. Or it should answer to it. First, communion should remind us of our continuing need. It should create humility and dependence, seeing the penalty for our sin. That's the effect communion should have on us. It also should create repentance, seeing the debt of my sin and the penalty paid being blood. It creates a change of mind and a change of heart toward those things that held me, held me in debt. But it also creates hope because Christ did die, Christ did pay the penalty, and He did rise again. So that communion now is a proclamation of His death until He comes. He didn't stay dead, obviously. So those are the things that communion should affect in us as we observe it. It's meant to keep our hearts sensitive to these core truths and realities that the church holds dear. It is the very heart of the gospel, is what communion depicts. And so God, in His wisdom, sets up a, an institution, a memorial, to bring us back to these core central things all the time. Because when we stray from those, bad things happen in the church. When we forget and aren't reminded of those truths, the church begins to stray. And this is where 1 King, Kings comes in. What happens when we forget these realities? If you know your Old Testament, if you've read through it, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 8. And we're going to look at Solomon and then the immediate generation following Solomon. King Solomon was David's son. He was the child born to Bathsheba after the first child was taken by the Lord because of David's affair with her. But it was to Solomon that God promised David's kingdom would be passed on to. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon has built the temple um, complex, the whole structure to the Lord. God forbid David to do that. And in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, we have Solomon's prayer of dedication of the new temple that he's just built. And if you remember, uh, I didn't say this earlier, if you remember in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7-14, through 14, before this all happens, God showed up to Solomon in a vision and said, hey, grant, ask me whatever you wish and I will grant it to you. And do you remember what it was that Solomon asked for? It wasn't riches, it wasn't power, it wasn't the head of his enemy. He asked for wisdom. But it was wisdom not just to be wise, not just for wisdom's sake. He wanted to know wisdom so that he could discern how to lead Israel into truth and into righteousness and justice. He didn't just want to be smart. He didn't want to be the wisest man out there so he could boast. He wanted to lead this great nation of gods in truth, in righteousness, and justice. And because that was his heart's desire, God said, I'll give it to you. And I'll give you everything else that you didn't ask for. So God blesses him. He becomes extremely wealthy. He builds this temple complex. And he's about to dedicate it. And he prays this long prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. I want to pick it up 
Um, in verse 27, we'll read a few verses, then skip down. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon prays this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, so that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there so that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So we see Solomon's heart in the right spot, seeking the right things, right? Lord, when we meet you here and your name dwells in this place, when we seek your face and confess our sins, hear and forgive. He goes on, if you jump down to verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captor, saying, we have sinned and we've acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and they prayed to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you've chosen, and to the house that I've built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people. What a wonderful request. And what a hope that Solomon could request it. How much more in the New Testament, right? Now that sin has been paid for. What's sad in Solomon's case is he was the wisest man during his time. His heart was set on the right things initially. Seeking truth, seeking justice, seeking righteousness. And when we sin, repenting and going back to the Lord that they may be forgiven. He was there. But he goes through his life and he goes through his Time is king, and there is a sin that he never dealt with, and it had devastating consequences. Go to 1 Kings 11. In verses 1 and 2, we're told what that is. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. There was an idol in Solomon's heart that he loved, and it was women. It goes on to say he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, And they did indeed turn his heart away from the Lord. Now here's the wisest man, a man who was without a doubt dedicated to the Lord, whom God permitted to build him the first temple, who heard his prayer, answered his prayer, blessed Solomon. And Solomon gets to the end of his life, and because he never dealt with this idol of his heart, this love of women, 
his heart turned after their gods. Now, when you do a study, we're not going to do it here, but when you do a study of the gods of the Ammonites and the Moabites and all these gods, their practices were horrendous. They worshiped the god of the underworld, of, of uh, pestilence and disease and death, and it was demonic. The Moabite god Chemosh, I think was his name, or Molech, was a statue that was made out of metal, bronze, I think, that they would heat up and put their children on to sizzle alive as a child sacrifice. Horrendous practices, and yet Solomon worshipped these. Now, it's hard for us to imagine a man who was so godly to start, so dedicated to the Lord, whom God definitely blessed, some point in his life going so far so as to actually worship a God who the people sacrificed their children to. But it happened. And it happened over a progression. And we're told why it happened. It's because he had a lust in his heart, a love for women that he never dealt with, and it slowly drew him away from God. That's usually how sin works in us. Solomon strayed from the core truths so that eventually he stopped observing it altogether. In response to all this, God told Solomon, I'm going to take the kingdom from your hand. Yet for my, my servant David's sake, I will always have a man on the throne. And of course, that was to fulfill the lineage of Christ, the one, the son of David, who would come to reign forevermore. The immediate generation following Solomon is what's really sad in my mind in this whole history of Israel. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. And we're told that Rehoboam in, um, in 1 Kings chapter 11, after Solomon dies, the very first thing that Rehoboam, when he comes to be king, does is something very foolish and very carnal. He ignores the request of, of Jeroboam, who was promised through prophecy that, hey, Jeroboam, I'm going to split the kingdom of Solomon up. I'm going to give you ten tribes, and I, I'm going to give Rehoboam two tribes. It was of the Lord. Now, Jeroboam wasn't a godly guy, but the Lord was bringing about this turn of events, the Scripture says. And so, Rehoboam, when Jeroboam comes back to Rehoboam and says, hey, your, your servant uh, served Solomon, are you going to be kind to us? Are you going to be gentle with us? And basically Rehoboam listened to the young men rather than the old men. The old men said, hey, you need to treat these men kindly. They'll serve you faithfully. His young counselor said, hey, you need to be hard on them. And Rehoboam listened to the young men and made life difficult. So Jeroboam flees and they're at war with each other. But what happens is the kingdom's divided. Rehoboam becomes what's known as the king of the southern kingdom, Judah which is where Jerusalem was, Jeroboam becomes king of the rest of the ten tribes of Israel. Now what happened to these two? This is really where I want to be for our, for our time. Because this is going to bridge into what we see happening in the church when we stray from the core truths that we're remembering this morning. Judah, the southern kingdom under Rehoboam's rule, continued in carnality, and they continued into in the divided worship of the Lord. Rehoboam, being Solomon's son, continued the practice Solomon laid down in worshiping all these other gods, while at the same time making sacrifice to the Lord in Jerusalem. Rehoboam didn't change any of that. 
So they were characterized as a very carnal, idolatrous nation. Judah, the southern kingdom. Mixed worship. Um, in fact, if you want to turn over to 1 Kings chapter 14, we'll see what happened to Rehoboam. 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. But it's important to remember they never stopped sacrificing to the Lord either. So they became a carnal, idolatrous nation mixed in worship. Worshiping the Lord while serving all these other gods. That's Rehoboam, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. What about Jeroboam, king of the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom? Go back to chapter 12. Jeroboam actually becomes apostate. So Rehoboam leads them continuing into carnality. Jeroboam goes further, and they actually become apostate. Look at uh, verse 25, okay? So Jeroboam is made king over Israel, the, the ten tribes. It says, Then Jer Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now this is interesting, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem then their heart, the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So Jer Jeroboam says in his heart, if I don't do something, all these people are going to return to Jerusalem because that's where sacrifice should be made in the temple. And if they actually go worship the Lord in Jerusalem, their hearts will be united again to Rehoboam and I'll be dead. He'll kill me. Completely selfish, completely carnal. What's his answer? Rather than repenting, rather than trusting in the Lord, what's he do? Verse 28. So the, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Sounds familiar. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Now do you realize how important that statement is? What he just said? You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. You don't need to go to worship God. Whew, that's a scary phrase. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There's apostasy. And what, what motivated it? Not a love of God. Nothing but a selfish concern for his own kingdom. He wanted to be king. And he didn't want his people going to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. I'll set up a system of worship here that, that you can stay put. You've gone up long enough to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, which is where Jacob's ladder, vision of Jacob's ladder was. God's covenant was made with him. And the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people 
went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. So what does Jeroboam do? Not only is he carnal, he actually sets up a system of worship to preserve him in his carnality. He draws the people away from God, sets up a system of worship, these golden calves, appoints his own priests, and creates this whole system of worship. There's apostasy. And very quickly, the Lord answers Jeroboam and says, you will never have a descendant on the throne again. And he cuts him off. I'm not going to go into all that. So what's the point of this? Rehoboam, king of Judah, keeps the, the nation in carnality while still worshiping the Lord. Jeroboam becomes completely apostate. They cease to worship the Lord altogether. Why? Because Solomon never dealt with his sin. He strayed from the core truths that he initially pursued. What's the point for us? Why do we have memorials like this? To bring us back to remember the core truths of Christianity. Because if we stray from these core truths and we forget these core truths, what will happen to the church? And what do we see happening to the church? You have carnal churches and you have apostate churches. The cross of Christ becomes of no effect when sin is not taken seriously, when the death, the penalty, the payment of sin is not remembered. These are violent truths. They're hard truths. They're ugly truths. But they are necessary for the church always to put before us because it was the cost and the penalty for sin. And it is by that that we are saved. And it is from that that we are saved. To be sure, carnal churches and apostate churches they do stray from this message of the cross. They've forgotten the ongoing presence of sin and the constant need for us to be vigilant against it. They've forgotten the penalty of sin because they've turned grace into cheap grace, not costly grace. They've forgotten the payment for sin, that the blood of Christ was shed to ransom us from these things. How can we then continue in them, like Paul says in Romans 6.1? And carnal and apostate churches have both forgotten the ultimate hope is that one day we'll be delivered from these things finally and forever. Now it's interesting, Rehoboam was not a good king. He was a carnal king. But as you tease out the history of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel go completely apostate. And in the history of Israel, those ten tribes were taken into captivity over a hundred years before Judah was by Nebuchadnezzar. God dealt with them severely. He dealt with them much more quickly, and they were gone. But, but when you read the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're focusing on the southern kingdom, Judah. Why? Because, hey, yes, they're carnal. Yes, they're full of idolatry, but they are still got this element of, of worshiping the Lord in the temple in it. Until finally God says, enough. You're entertaining these things long enough. You're gone as well. And God deals with them in Babylon. And that's the history of it. He brings them back. He restores them. But they come back to what? These core truths. When you read uh, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, what do they do? They start reading the Word of God again. 
They start teaching the people the Word of God. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the city. Why? To begin worshiping the Lord in truth. So you see, after God dealt with them in judgment and brings them back to their land, they come back to what they should have come back to. The core truths of what they should have never left. And so, that's why we observe communion. That's why we put it before us always. Hey, we don't put communion before us to beat us down. We're not under the penalty of sin anymore. But you know what? There's an element of communion that should always keep us humble. It was horrendous. It was costly. And it could only be paid by the righteous, sinless Lamb of God. And He did. And He did it with joy. And He did it for our freedom. And He did it because He truly loves us. But he calls us to remember what it was that he did. So we're going to do communion. Before we take communion, um, we're going to have a, a time of prayer and reflection. And, and Ronnie's going to sing a song, lead us in a song, and then we'll, we'll take communion together. So what I want you to do is just take a moment, if you're here this morning, go before the Lord and remember the sacrifice for you, that it was for you. But it was a sacrifice for you, so, as Paul says, that so we may no longer continue in sin as we once did. It's a sacrifice that should make us holy unto the Lord, not carnal.